Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, David Preston, the author of Braddock's Defeat. David Preston, author of Braddock's Defeat, The Battle of the Monongahela and the Road to Revolution. Right in the beginning of your book, you say you wanted to write the book because um, factual errors, untested arguments, myths, and outright fictions have become too encrusted in many modern renderings. What kind of myths and untruths are there about Braddock's Defeat? Braddock's Defeat is one of those battles that, that historians, as well as I think history enthusiasts alike, think has, has been done to death. We, we know everything there is to know about Braddock's defeat. And indeed, it has been one of the most studied battles of early American history because of its importance. However, there's never really been a, a deeply researched volume on Braddock's defeat. And historians have tended to accept uh, a lot of older interpretations that have been done of the battle. And a lot of those interpretations are, are blends of fact and mythology. Braddock's defeat is arguably one of the most mythologized battles of, of American history, ranking up there with Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg or uh, Little Bighorn and Custer's Last Stand. And unfortunately for, um, for history, <laughs> uh, there has been a tendency to accept a lot of those those inaccuracies or myths as actual truths about what had happened. So one of the things I wanted to accomplish in this volume was to thoroughly research this in all the different archives of the, the players involved. Um, I went to Canada, I went to Britain, um, there, were, there were archives in France that I, I consulted, uh, as well as archives and libraries all over the, the states. And, what that produced was um, new evidence and, and new findings that have shown us that this battle that everybody thinks has been done to death, why do we need another volume on Braddock's defeat? Uh, th there, was, there were still things to find out about it. Well, for people who are not entirely clear on the details of the battle, where did it take place and who fought who? Okay, uh, this was a battle fought on July the 9th, 1755, and it in a nutshell, is one of the greatest military disasters in all of, of history. Certainly, it's one of the greatest disasters for the, for the British Army in its long and, and distinguished history. Uh, this battle was fought near what is now Pittsburgh in the, uh, the town of North Braddock. Um, and it pitted a British Army under the command of Major General Edward Braddock he commanded a force of about 1,400 men, and his destination was Fort Duquesne, right at the, the, the tip of the, uh, of, the, of the point, where Point State Park is located in, in modern Pittsburgh. 
And he was um, set upon by a, a smaller but powerful force of uh, French Canadian forces as well as their Indian allies. And the, the French and Indian force combined um, was roughly about 900 uh, people and two-thirds of that force was composed of Native American warriors that, that formed part of a, a, a broad coalition that was fighting with the French at that, at that time. And this battle occurred uh, at the beginning of what is known as the French and Indian War, uh, which, which broke out here in America in 1754 and 55, and eventually it spread to the whole, the whole world. And so uh, European historians tend to know this, this war as the Seven Years' War. Who were the Indians fighting on the, on the side of the French, and how did the French recruit them? How did they persuade them to fight for them? A lot of the native allies that, that fought with the French that day were long-standing French allies. One of the things that the French had done so successfully in um, really the, the century and a half preceding this battle was to garner the, the support diplomatically, militarily, of the native nations of the interior. So the, one of the surprising findings in my research was to, to uncover that as many as 20 different Indian nations or communities were part of this, this coalition that fought with the French against the British at the Battle of the Monongahela. And in general, these, um, these, these native groups came from three geographic locations. Uh, the, the first area was the St. Lawrence Valley modern Canada, where um, the native communities there often lived uh, in, in close proximity to, to French Canadians. Another location was the, was the Great Lakes. Um, so you, you had Indian nations as far west as what is now uh, Wisconsin, who were, who were coming all the way here to the, to the Ohio Valley to fight the British. And then the third, the third contingent were, were nations that were located generally here in, in the Ohio Valley nations like the Delawares, the Shawnees, uh, and, and the Miamis. What was in it for the Indians? I think by, by the 1750s, uh, ma many natives could, could perceive the, the, the basic difference between the, the French and the British in North America. And I, I recall th there was one uh, Canadian Iroquois speaker in 1754 and the way, that, the way that he characterized the difference between the British and the French was, was very apt. He said that, uh, look, look at, the, at the forts of our, our French father. And he, he challenged a, a, his, his native audience, you can still hunt around the forts of our French father. But he, he contrasted those with the British forts. And he said uh, to the effect that, no sooner do the British establish a, a fort in the region, a trading post, than soon there, there are swarms of settlers flocking like pigeons and destroying our hunting. And so natives were, were very astute in terms of how they were able to judge their, their national interest. And you know, when, you, when you add on top of that, that, that a lot of these ties and alliances with the French went back for, for many decades, um, they, they had fought together before against the, the English. Um, you had, you had the, 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 the basis, the foundation of a very strong and durable alliance. And it's indeed one that, 
that, that gave the French in the 1750s the overall strategic advantage over the, the British. So when the French built forts, they didn't bring people over from France to live around there, colonize it? Not really. The, the, French, um, the, the French presence in, in North America as a whole was, was very small. Even, even by the 1750s, the total French population scattered from uh, what, what is now Newfoundland all the way down to Louisiana was, was a little over 50,000. Compare that to uh, the, the, the British 13 colonies, which by this point are, are burgeoning towards one and a half million. And the, the, the Indians had definitely felt the, the effects of that pressure of, of, of British settlement expansion. The French were coming here for far different reasons. They were coming here largely for, uh, for trade, and um, the, the fur trade really didn't require a lot of boots on the ground in the form of, of settlers. And most of those, those French settlers who, who elected to remain in, in Canada, uh, they, they were largely settled around the St. Lawrence Valley, and not really an intrusive presence on, on nation, Indian nations in the interior. Well, I learned from your book that Fort Duquesne was not the first fort at the point in Delaware, there was some, uh, in uh, Pittsburgh, there was a Trent's Fort there? Right, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a small stockade, maybe not deserving the name of, of Fort, but nonetheless, um, it, it's a reminder that, that the Forks of the Ohio, as uh, modern day Pittsburgh was known in the 18th century, that the Forks of the Ohio was, was really the most important point strategically for all of the players involved in the story, whether it be the French, the British, or the, the native nations, certainly, of, who, who lived in this area. Um, for the French, the Ohio Valley was, was a, another means of communication within, within their empire. It was a link from Canada to their, their posts and settlements in Illinois, as well as uh, Louisiana, the Mississippi Valley. For the British, especially, uh, the, the, the Virginians, the Ohio Valley was, was, was the place that very much beckoned the, the future for them. Uh, it, it was a means of accessing um, the, the Trans-Appalachian West. They, they knew that, that they, they could go from the Ohio all the way down to the Mississippi. They also knew that if they were able to get a foothold in the Ohio Valley, that they might be able to draw some of these local nations away from the French alliance and into their orbit. For the native peoples who lived in the upper Ohio Valley here, for, for them the importance of this place was, was home. And they, they very much wanted to, to keep both the, the French and the British at, at arm's length. Um, one of the most famous sayings from a, a, an Indian leader um, named, named Tana Grissom was uh, he, he said that we live in a country between. And he meant, of course, that they were, they were very much living between the, the two rivals of the French and the, the British empires. Can you describe Fort Duquesne at the time? Fort Duquesne was, um, was, was a, a small but, but powerful fortress. It was very much the anchor, uh, certainly the most powerful fortification that the French constructed in the, the Ohio Valley in the 1750s. Uh, and and they, they did that knowing the importance of the place. Now, 
uh, the, the French had, had constructed Fort Duquesne uh, on, on the site of Trent's Fort, which we just mentioned, which was uh, the, the first attempt by the British to erect some type of, of fortification at the point. Um, the, the French will seize Trent's Fort uh, by, by force in April of 1754. And for, for many British observers, it's, it's that moment when the French seize militarily the, the forks of the Ohio, that very much uh, is regarded as the onset of hostilities. The irony is that the French came in such numbers, 600 men, uh, perhaps as many as 18 cannon. Uh, they came with such monumental force that the, the small puny garrison at Trent's Fort, maybe 40 people max, uh, ha had no chance and they, they surrendered immediately. Uh, how, how did the process go that, uh, that the British decided, okay, well, we have to send troops and we have to take back the forks? Well, again, it, it's, it's really about the perception of, of many British observers at that time. Uh, the, for the French to send that monumental a force, 600 men um, with, with artillery to capture a post, that, that, was, that was really uh, seen as, as, a, as, as a major military undertaking. And when, when, you, when, when news of this comes back to, uh, to Britain in 1754, uh, the, the British government sees this as well as, as a very alarming development. And many British policymakers in 1754 were apt to, to see the, the colonists as inefficient and unable to, 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 to meet this daunting threat. Um, that perception becomes even more established when, uh, when Washington and his small force of Virginians and South Carolinians is defeated at Fort Necessity in the summer of 1754. And so part of the impetus for the British government's decision in September of 1754 to send two regiments of redcoats, regulars under the command of, of Major General Braddock, Part of the impetus for that was this, this perception that the colonists were not capable of, of uh, meeting this, this French challenge and that, that regulars were necessary to step in and do the job. You say in your book that that was the first time British regulars had been on Virginia soil in 70 years? That, that's correct. One of the, um, one of the, the misconceptions about, about Braddock's expedition that I've seen is that it was the first time that the British government had ever sent regulars to America. That's, that's, that's inaccurate. The British had sent uh, redcoats previously, uh, actually numerous times before 1755. Uh, so this was not entirely an unprecedented move. Um, but in the case of Virginia, yes, uh, it had been uh, quite, a, quite a number of, of years, decades, since um, there had been any type of, of presence of, of regular British military forces in the colony. Can you explain the connection between Virginia and what is now Pittsburgh? Right, well, Virginia had, um, of, of all of the different uh, English colonies, Virginia was very fortunate in that it had the, um, the most expansive charter. Uh, Virginia's land boundaries uh, if, if you look at them on paper, they would have taken in basically much of, of the, the entire North American continent. So part of Virginia's land claims 
technically included what is now uh, Western Pennsylvania. And so Virginia was, uh, by, by virtue of that land claim, by virtue of uh, their, their settlement expansion in the 18th century, uh, Virginia was very aggressive in advancing those claims, um, sometimes to the dismay of other colonies that felt that, that the Virginians were, were so aggressive and precipitate that, um, that they, were, they were rushing other, other colonies headlong into a war. So uh, when the British landed, they landed in Virginia? That's correct. How did they know how to get to Pittsburgh? That's a wonderful question. Um, George Washington had been into the Ohio Valley by this point uh, a total of, of two times. In 1753, he had journeyed from Williamsburg all the way to what is now um, Waterford, Pennsylvania. And his mission there was to deliver a, a warning or a summons to the, to the French commander there to cease and desist with any fort building and, and any attempts of the French to militarily occupy the region. Uh, Washington returned the, the following year in 1754 with force uh, as, as, a, as a way to uh, assert British control over the region. And that's indeed when he, was, he, he ran into trouble, was defeated by the French and the Indians at Fort Necessity. Washington publishes a, a journal that he kept uh, during his, his diplomatic venture up there in 1753. And uh, that journal actually constituted key intelligence for the British of the lay of the land. Uh, on top of that, you, you had reports of, um, of, of previous explorers, of, of traders. Um, so the British knew that they were going to land in Virginia, and they knew that they were going to advance overland from Virginia, uh, paralleling the Potomac River, essentially, and then marching over the, the Appalachians in order to access um, the Monongahela Valley and then Fort Duquesne. I want to ask you about General Braddock, because you say historians have often described Braddock as an arrogant, brash, and inexperienced commander whose complacent trust in disciplined troops and slavish adherence to European tactics led him to certain defeat by skilled Indian opponents. Right. Fact well, or myth? <laughs> that, that would indeed be one of the, the great myths out there about, about Braddock. Um, what, what's the saying? Dead men tell no tales. Uh, Braddock was, was the perfect scapegoat for this disaster that, that befell British arms. And uh, because he, he is mortally wounded, he dies approximately five days after the battle. A lot of the blame for this disaster is heaped upon him. And indeed, the, the very name of the, of the battle really suggests the, the, the contemporary sense that this battle was Braddock's responsibility. It was Braddock's defeat in a, in a singular way. Whereas there, there was plenty of blame to go around <laughs> To, uh, to other British actors at that time. Um, I, I simply uh, gave, gave Braddock a fair shake. And one of the things that, that, that I asked in my research was why, was, why was he selected for this mission? What kind of experience did this officer have previously in, in Europe? And one of, the, um, one of the aspects of his career that a lot of historians have have never researched and indeed have glossed over 
is the period from 1753 to 54 when Braddock was the lieutenant governor and the, the commander, the commandant of um, the garrison of Gibraltar, the British possession in the, in the Mediterranean. And that experience as a uh, commandant at Gibraltar really opened my eyes to some of the, um, the reasons why Braddock was selected. Number one, he, uh, he, he really acquitted himself well and garnered a lot of praise for his conduct as, as the commander. And being at Gibraltar was essentially like uh, a, a school in siege warfare. This was, a, this was one of the most important British garrisons of all. And for him to be entrusted with it was a, was a major sign of confidence from, from the British government. He was responsible for, for maintaining the, the fortifications, the elaborate fortifications of this, of this island possession, uh, bristling with all sorts of artillery. And what was Braddock being asked to do in America? He was being asked to come over and besiege French forts in the wilderness. And that's the very set of, of skills that he would have been exposed to and learned at Gibraltar that equipped him for precisely that type of mission. How did he come to uh, in, uh, enlist George Washington in the mission? Well, uh, Braddock, when he, when he arrives in Virginia, he had, uh, he had already uh, known of, of Washington's deep experience in the wilderness, in the Ohio Valley. And Braddock actually solicited Washington's support and his help during the, the expedition. Um, Washington receives a, a very flattering letter from, uh, from one of Braddock's aides named Robert Orme. And uh, Washington joins Braddock's staff essentially as a, as a volunteer aide. And so I think that, that also says something about Braddock, that he, um, he, he saw the man who had the most experience on the ground in the area that he was going and said, I, I want you as part of my, as they termed it back then, my military family. Now, Benjamin Franklin figures into this, too. You refer in here that Benjamin Franklin essentially saved Braddock's mission. Yes. Um, this is one of the most interesting aspects of, of Benjamin Franklin's long and important career. Uh, in, in many ways, he, uh, he very much emerges on, on the scene uh, as, as, as an important political player during Braddock's expedition. Uh, when Braddock's expedition finally got underway in April of 1755, and the, the march begins from, from Alexandria westward, the British find that, that logistically the expedition might not even have enough resources to get even to Fort Cumberland, let alone all the way to the Ohio Valley. The problem was lack of horses and lack of, of wagons. They didn't plan ahead? Well, part of it is Braddock encounters the difficulties of campaigning in America. And logistically, there were challenges um, to, to gaining access to uh, supplies, whether it be enough wheat, uh, enough fodder to feed horses, let alone even getting enough horses and, and wagons and wagoners uh, from local farmers 
and, uh, and, and tradesmen. So by the time that, that Braddock has reached Frederick, Maryland, uh, it, it became apparent to some of the officers that the expedition was at an end, is how, is how one of his officers termed it. And there was this possibility that the expedition might be stillborn. Benjamin Franklin just happened to be in Frederick, Maryland, in Braddock's headquarters at that moment. And he, he mentions in kind of an offhanded way, uh, as, as only Franklin could do, you know, gee, it's, it's too bad that you didn't land in Philadelphia because there would be plenteous numbers of, of wagons and horses there. And Braddock instantly seizes on this suggestion and instantly com commissions Franklin gives him uh, lots of money to essentially go out and, and collect those horses and wagons that he thinks that every Pennsylvanian has and is readily available. And Franklin delivers the goods. And uh, he, he does so in a very effective way. Um, as I point out in the book, Franklin in many ways, he, he accomplishes more in a few weeks than these colonial governments had in a year. So. Franklin was, was uh, a very pivotal figure in, uh, in the expedition. Where's Fort Cumberland? Fort Cumberland is, is located <coughs> uh, at Cumberland, Maryland, modern Cumberland, Maryland. Is there any evidence of it today? There, there is um, a, a church there called uh, Emmanuel Episcopal Church, and essentially it, 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 is, it was constructed, uh, the, the, the modern church I believe is a 19th century church, and it's constructed generally on the location of um, Fort Cumberland. Fort Cumberland was, was already going to ruins by the 1760s. <clears throat> Down in the, um, the, the basement of um, Emmanuel Episcopal Church, however, there are some, some ruins of storehouses uh, from, from Fort uh, Cumberland, and uh, those are accessible to, to the public. So when they were ready to go, they had to build a road from Fort Cumberland, or was there a road that was there a road already that led from Virginia up to Fort Cumberland? Basically, um, the the state of roads in uh, the colonies at that at that time was was very abysmal. Uh, few, few improved roads, even fewer roads that, that could support uh, military wagons and artillery. And when you say road, what what constituted a road then? Uh, back then, more of a, um, perhaps a, 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 a well-worn horse path <laughs> um, that, that previous traders had, had used. Uh, certainly, wherever the British are going, um, west of, of Winchester, Virginia, they're essentially having to, to construct an entirely new wagon road. And, and again, that, that was, that was uh, requisite because Braddock is, is bringing with him uh, British army wagons, and he's also bringing with him a, a very large train of, of artillery. Giant, enormous pieces that can weigh uh, over three quarters of a, of a ton. How'd they get those over the mountain? Mountains. So, very, very excellent question, and it, it's one of those things that you could take for granted until you actually see and witness some of the enormous daunting ridgelines that this army had to surmount. And this was 
one of the most important aspects of the research process for me. While I, I learned a lot of new things in archives and, and libraries, it, it was truly an epiphany to be able to go to a place like uh, Spring Gap Mountain in West Virginia or Big Savage Mountain in uh, Western Maryland and to see the, 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 the terrain uh, that the, the Army had to, to carve a 12-foot wagon road through. And it, it was truly a, a, a miraculous undertaking uh, that, that the British were able to, to do this in so short a time. Are there places you can go now and, and see evidence of, oh, well, this is Braddock's Road? There, there are indeed many places. Um, one of the, uh, the mis misconceptions that, that many people have is that that modern-day U.S. 40, the National Road, was, was basically built over Braddock's Road. Uh, most of, of the, the extant traces of Braddock's Road are actually on private property today. But there, there are a number of places that, that are easily accessible to the, to the public. Um, for example, uh, Fort Necessity National Battlefield and also the, the Braddock Grave. Uh, unit of, of the Fort Necessity Battlefield. There are some, some excellent um, traces of, of Braddock's Road that are marked and accessible to, to visitors. Uh, Big Savage Mountain is in a state forest in western Maryland. That's also a really excellent uh, stretch of, of the road. But to, to get out there and see some of these, these uh, mountains and ridges and, and boulders that the British Army had to, to blast their way through. It's, it, it's truly uh, a spectacular uh, undertaking. If, if you were, when you were writing this book, did you ever just kind of close your eyes and try to imagine what the scene was like at the time the troops were moving and they were building the road? And can you paint a picture? What would you have seen if you were standing by the roadside and here comes the British troops? I think that we would all be struck by the grueling nature of the, the labor and, and just the, the, the strain and the, the wear and tear on the men as well as the, as the horses. Um, I think one of the most, one of the most poignant uh, locations for me personally was seeing Big Savage Mountain in Western Maryland. And this, this was a stretch that um, where, where the British had to go up a grade of about 9% over two miles. And so again, think about the strain on horses of having to pull an artillery piece that weighs over three quarters of a ton over two miles. Um, troops were even ordered during this section of the march to, um, to help push the, the wheels of these wagons up the steep grade. Um, General Braddock had even uh, collected a a small group of, of miners, uh, men from his, his regiments that had experience in mining back in, back in Britain. And that little group of miners was charged with blowing boulders out of, the, out of the way that were just too large. So they had to use blasting powder to get those out of the way. Um, on the western slope of, of this mountain, um, the British had uh, a handful of, of wagons that simply crashed down to the bottom of the, uh, the, the, the mountain that they lost control of. So in, in a word, grueling, grueling, grueling labor. How fast did they move? 
astonishingly fast. This is another uh, misconception that, that people have of Braddock's march is that it was slow, it was plodding, it was methodical. When you again look at the terrain, when you, when you understand the terrain that, that the army is going through, it's a miracle that, these, that these, these men are moving five, six, seven, eight, nine miles a day. And it takes Braddock a little over a month from the time that he departs Fort Cumberland to the time that he reaches the Monongahela River. And to, to cover that terrain, to go over those mountains, and again, to carve a 12-foot military road in the space of a month is, is a breathtaking achievement. Had Braddock defeated the French in July of 1755, we would hail him today as a modern Hannibal, like the, the ancient uh, hero who had conquered the Alps. You say here, the common stereotype of the British rank and file as dregs of society drawn from the sewers and taverns of London, <laughs> and um, the most agreed with one British governor who described them as the scum of every country, the refuge refuse of mankind. Lieutenant Colonel James Wolfe, the future victor at Quebec, referred to his men as dirty, drunken, insolent rascals and terrible dogs to look at. <laughs> that indeed was one of the most powerful um, perceptions of the, the rank and file, the enlisted men of the, of the British Army uh, in, in the 18th century. That's part of the reason, by the way, that, um, that colonial Americans also detested the, uh, the British regulars whenever they were stationed uh, or quartered amongst them. But it sounded like the British didn't think much of the colonials either. That, that's true. It's, it's interesting when you, you referenced Wolfe there. Wolfe says a lot of the same things about, about colonial troops <laughs> when, when he gets to America. Um, I suppose that in, in general those, those attitudes are part of the, um, just the, the mindset of, of um, elite figures in the, in the 18th century that, that tended to look down on ordinary people. Um, but the colonists in, in their militias, you know, they, they, they view themselves as, um, as virtuous, as independent. Um, and this plays into perceptions of Braddock's defeat. Uh, there, there's a tendency after Braddock's defeat to, to blame this affair on the rank-and-file regulars who, who allegedly panicked and uh, didn't obey the orders of their officers and ran pell-mell off the, off the field, whereas the, the virtuous colonial provincial units behaved with gallantry. Um, this is part of the reason why Washington and the Virginians are, are lionized uh, following Braddock's defeat. And indeed, this is a part where the mythology is very true to form. Uh, the Americans truly did fight the most effectively at Braddock's defeat in comparison to the supposedly regular disciplined professionals out there. How many colonial soldiers were along with the group and versus the, the regulars? The, um, the, the two regular units under Braddock's command, the 44th and the 48th regiments, they, they composed the, the, the bulk of the, um, the, the force in, Braddock, in Braddock's army in 1755. There were a few hundred uh, provincial troops, and those were uh, from Virginia. There were also um, 
two independent companies. And these were, these were very unique units. Uh, they were technically part of the regular British Army, but the, the independent companies were, were independent companies. That means they're, they're unregimented. They're not associated with any particular British regiment. And they were essentially small, depleted garrison forces that were stationed here in the colonies. So they were British, they were not colonists? Well, the, the rank and file of the independent companies tended to be colonial recruits, whereas the officers tended to be mainline British royal officers. Um, so in all, for all intents and purposes, these were like American regulars. And there was an independent company from South Carolina that was part of uh, Braddock's army at the Monongahela. And there was also an independent company from New York commanded by a soon-to-be famous captain named Horatio Gates. Um, and he, he would, of course, become the, the, the famous general of the Battle of Saratoga uh, over, over 20 years later. But all of those American units, whether the Virginia Provincials or the independent companies, they tended to fight with the most uh, gallantry and effectiveness. You also have a Thomas Gage who's an officer along on the Braddock trip, who figures in the American Revolution later on. Indeed. Can you explain the Gates and Gage di difference? Sure. Indeed, this is one of the, the most compelling aspects of the story of Braddock's defeat, is that you have a handful of officers who were pivotal figures in the French and Indian War, and then who, who are also pivotal figures in the American Revolution 20 years later. Washington, obviously, uh, Horatio Gates, and Thomas Gage. Thomas Gage, at this point, was uh, lieutenant colonel of the 44th Regiment, essentially the executive officer of the 44th. And he was the, the leader of the advance party on the, on the day of the battle. Now, later on, Gage goes on to become the, the commander-in-chief of all British forces in, in all of North America. And that's the position that he has in 1775 when the battles of Lexington and Concord occur at the beginning of the Revolution. Now, Gates, Horatio Gates, is a very compelling figure because he was, like Gage, a British regular officer. Gage was, um, was a native Briton and when the revolution occurs, uh, Horatio Gates makes a, a very brave uh, and principled decision to support the Republican cause of the Americans. And so he uh, will resign his, his commission and come over and gain a new commission as a general in the Continental Army. You also, did I read this right? Daniel Boone was along on the Braddock trip? He was indeed. Um, Twelve years old. Well, Boone was... Um, he was part of um, the, a, a, a unit of, of North Carolina troops that, that came to join Braddock's expedition. And uh, Boone was, was a teamster in, in Braddock's expedition. Uh, later uh, testimonies and stories about, about Boone uh, suggest that he was indeed a, a wagoner at the actual battle 
and Boone chose the, uh, uh, you know, the, the better part of valor, and he, he cut a horse from his, his team and, uh, and, and fled for safety when he uh, saw the battle turning against the, the British. Um, Boone, however, was, was exposed to stories about um, the promise of, of uh, the West. He apparently learns during Braddock's expedition of a place called Kentucky, Kentucky. Um, and indeed, he will eventually go there following uh, the, the French and Indian War. Another compelling frontier character who's a part of Braddock's expedition is uh, Daniel Morgan. And uh, he also will, um, will use this experience and uh, becomes a, a very effective um, irregular fighter during the Revolutionary War. I'm trying to find where in the book you just, oh, here it is. Uh, you say he was the quintessential product of the American frontier who absorbed its independence and emulated the tactics and dress of Indian warriors. Rising to the rank of Brigadier General in the Continental Army, he laid a devil of a whipping on the British at the Battle of Cowpens. Yes, um, and, and Morgan, in my mind, he, he kind of symbolizes uh, one of the most important outcomes of Braddock's defeat, and that's how it, it, it led to uh, adaptation of conventional styles of warfare, which is to say European styles, uh, regular war, if you will, and the, the type of warfare practiced by, by Indians at, at Braddock's defeat, what people at the, term time, ter, people at the, at the time termed irregular, unconventional, or petite guerre. Um, and Morgan really fuses those two types of, um, of, of wars. And an example of that would be in, in the year 1775 when he um, is commissioned in the, the Continental Army. He leads a, a company of Virginia riflemen from Virginia all the way to uh, Boston where, where Washington's army is is assembling at that point. And uh, you know, the, a lot of these Virginians are toting rifles, so they understand the importance of marksmanship. They are dressed and equipped like Indians. Um, and Morgan will use a lot of the tactics that he's been exposed to during the French and Indian War. He will use those tactics against the British in, in the Revolution. Can I ask you a little bit about yourself? You are a teacher? Indeed, um, I'm a professor at the Citadel, the military academy in Charleston, South Carolina. What do you teach? I specialize in, in uh, military history, American military history, and I particularly focus on early America. And so I, I do uh, specialized courses for cadets and officer candidates on colonial history, the Revolutionary War, and I've even developed uh, a special course on the French and Indian War. Have you written other books before this? I have. Uh, my, my first book uh, was entitled uh, The Texture of Contact, and that is a work that examines the everyday relationships among um, Indian, French, Canadian, and British communities in uh, the Northeast, in what is now Canada, New York, uh, Pennsylvania and Virginia. Is that more of an academic book than a popular book? It's uh, it's more aimed at, at academics. 
uh, by virtue of being my, my first book. But I, I very much wrote it for um, any, anybody who's interested in, in the history of Indian and, and white relations in the colonial era. But, uh, did the red coats at this battle actually wear red coats? They literally wore red coats? They, they did. Um, one of the interesting things that, that Braddock uh, did with his, with his two regular units, however, was he, he tried to adapt them for the kind of, of conditions that, that they would encounter in, uh, the, the, in the woods of America. Uh, so the redcoats in Braddock's army don't look exactly like uh, the, the redcoats do in, in some of the, the typical paintings of that, that period that are illustrated in the, in the book. So for example, um, rather than wearing wool uh, breeches and a wool waistcoat in the summer in the woods, uh, Braddock's regiments, uh, the, the rank and file, were wearing uh, makeshift breeches and waistcoats made out of a cooler cloth uh, called Osnaberg. Um, he allows the regulars to um, dispense with some of their heavy, heavier accoutrements. And so he, he, he is trying to make these red coats a, as light as they, as they can. Osnaberg? Osnaberg. Osnaberg. It's what a, is that? It's a, it's a type of, of linen fabric that was, um, that was very widely used in, uh, in the colonial era. And because it's linen, it's much, much cooler than, uh, than heavy wool. Now, your, your front painting uh, depicts a scene in the battle and it has a bunch of people wearing blue coats. Yes, the, um, the Virginia provincial troops uh, generally were wearing some type of, of, of red or perhaps a, a blue uh, regimental coat. Um, and so that, that was one thing that distinguished the, the provincials from uh, the red coats. Um, so the, and by the way, the, the the, the, the red coats themselves were, were further distinguished um, by regiment or unit. So the 44th Regiment had uh, yellow facings and, and cuffs. They also had a, a unique zigzag lace pattern on, um, sewn on the, the cuffs, their buttonholes as, as lining on the edges. The 44th Regiment, by contrast, had buff-colored um, facings and cuffs, different lace pattern. And this was just the, one of the ways that the British uh, tried to distinguish between different, different regiments in the 18th century. Did the French know Braddock was coming? They did indeed. Um, they had had intelligence uh, as early as the spring of 1755 that, uh, th th that Braddock was indeed uh, marching. What the French did not know until uh, June is when he departed Fort Cumberland. And finding Braddock's army in, in the woods was, was also a very difficult task. Um, in many ways, one of the most difficult aspects of warfare in the 18th century was, was gaining accurate and timely intelligence of your opponent. And it says something about that difficulty that the French sent um, dozens and dozens and dozens of, of uh, Canadian as well as, as Indian scouts out towards Fort Duquesne to try to, uh, to, to locate Braddock's column where it was. Um, but in the end, in early July 1755, 
the French commanders at Fort Duquesne seem, seem very surprised when Braddock finally shows up in the Monongahela Valley, just about two or three days' march from, from the fort. And so I imagine that the scene at Fort Duquesne in early July was, was one of, of, uh, of great concern, if not uh, trepidation, at the, at the onset of this powerful army. I want to get back to one of the myths about Braddock that you write about. You say, in any case, the myth of, of Braddock as an ethnocentric racist general who contemptuously spurned potential Indian allies, refuted their claims to land, and scorned their military abilities simply cannot be sustained by eyewitness evidence. Now, we've discussed in other uh, programs in this series about Braddock and the scene where the Indians say, well, what happens to us after the, the right. war? And Braddock says, well, you get out. Right. Did that happen? It, it did not. And this is a case of, of where uh, th this is very much a, a modern myth about, about Braddock, that he, um, he was contemptuous, contemptuous of, of Indian allies, that he spurned the, the Indians' rights to the land. And the, the uh, selection that you, you quoted there was, was drawn from a Pennsylvania settler named Charles Stewart, who was taken as a captive following Braddock's defeat. And so Stewart was essentially reporting on, on something that uh, a native had, had told him. However, when, when, you, when you look at that document, which is really hearsay in a, in a technical sense, and then you compare that to the, the voluminous amount of evidence that we have on what actually happened at these, um, these diplomatic conferences between Braddock and the natives, we find that just the reverse was being said. What kind of documents? Well, for, for example, we have um, the, the, the actual speech that, uh, that General Braddock delivered to the, the natives at, at Fort Cumberland in 1755. Someone wrote it down? Or was it written beforehand? It was written beforehand. It was kind of a, a scripted for him. And there's evidence from General Braddock himself uh, in, his, in his own words that, that says that, um, that, that, that the natives would be very useful to me. Um, he, he did everything possible to try to solicit native support. It was very unfortunate for Braddock that he arrived at a time when, when the colonists themselves had done so much to, um, to prevent that from happening. Um, specifically, what I mean by that is the ways that the colonists had expanded on to Indians' lands and, and really alienated any potential allies that, that Braddock could have, um, could have drawn into his expedition. Um, but General Braddock's principal diplomatic message to the natives in 1755 from multiple sources was that the British were actually coming to liberate and restore the Indians' lands and to eject the French. That was what he was telling the Indians. So why did Braddock lose? This is, a, of course, the, the question. Um, why was Braddock defeated? And that's, that's a kind of spring-loaded question, given the name of the battle. People tend to start with what Braddock did. Fewer historians have looked at why the French and Indians won. 
And this is, this is uh, I think, one of the, the, the most important aspects of, of my book is that it, for the first time, looks deeply at what was happening throughout this campaign and on the day of the battle on the French and the native sides. And this was a, this was a, um, a, a fortuitous discovery during my research that, um, that I, I found an, a new French account of the battle that very much uh, filled in what was before this time a, a major black hole in our understanding of what exactly the, the French were doing. Um, there are a number of French accounts of the battle. However, none of them really explain specifically what happened from the moment that the French and Indian force left Fort Duquesne to the moment that they made contact with, um, with, the, with the British. And it was this document that, that gave me such a, a high estimation of the, of the tactical skill and the leadership and the decisions that the French and the Indians made going into this fight, especially the, the principal French officer uh, named Captain Beaujeu. And uh, I mean, we, we can talk about that, uh, that document more, um, but in, in a nutshell, the, the, the French did a masterful job of, um, of uh, attacking along the, the flanks of the British column and, and really ca catching the British at arguably the, the most vulnerable moment in, in a number of ways. They, they, they were, the British were vulnerable psychologically because they, they believed that following their successful crossing of the Monongahela River, that they were, the coast was clear. There were no French and Indians waiting for them on the other side. It was a likely ambush location. They felt that just a short march and they would be able to, to uh, trap the French and, and force them out of, out of the Ohio Valley. So it was a vulnerable psychological moment where they were on the cusp of victory. They were also vulnerable tactically because they were in a column formation and fighting from a column is a very difficult enterprise where you're stretched out along a mile and you're having to, to, to fight an enemy that's, that's coming in ahead of you. They were also vulnerable uh, topographically because the British at that point were ascending a, a major ridge line on the way to their next encampment. And so fighting on the side of, of a ridge was not advantageous either because the French and the Indians could possibly gain control of the high ground, which is indeed what, what they did. And the British had no fallback point. There was no place where they could retreat to safely with their backs pinned to the river, essentially. Uh, is there any evidence of the battlefield the way it looked then that still exists? Well, unfortunately, the, the, the battlefield of the Monongahela, uh, Braddock's Field, as it's been known throughout, throughout history, uh, there's, there's very little left of this place except for just the general contours of the, uh, of, of the terrain. Uh, the, the modern uh, towns of, of Braddock and North Braddock, essentially uh, have, those two areas are, are very well developed now. Um, 
much of the battlefield was also uh, built, built upon in the 1870s and 80s when Andrew Carnegie established uh, the Edgar Thompson Works, uh, which is one of the last integrated uh, steel-making facilities in the, the Mon Valley. Um, there's also a, a wonderful new museum in, in North Braddock called the Bad Braddock's Battlefield History Center. And I encourage uh, anyone who's interested in the story of, of uh, Braddock's defeat to, to visit that museum. It's, it's a wonderful, uh, well-developed museum. And it's, it's also on the, the very spot where the battle first uh, broke out on July 9th, 1755. If you could recommend a place for people to go to get a sense for what it, what the topography, what the, the trees, what everything was like back then, where should they go? Well, if, if one really wanted to, to see um, some of the, the old growth timber that uh, Braddock's army would have encountered, uh, I would go to, to Cook Forest State Park in, uh, in Pennsylvania. And there you can, you can see some of the, the, the massive uh, stands of, of old growth timber. And that's another aspect of, of Braddock's march that, that's amazing, is that the, uh, the Sawyers um, having to, to cut down these, these massive trees where, where diameters are measured in, in feet, and having to do that day in and day out. Um, again, just a, a, a grueling undertaking. You're working on another book? Yes. Um, I'm working on essentially a sequel to, uh, to Braddock's defeat, and one that will examine George Washington's role in the, the latter years of the, of the French and Indian War. I've become very interested in uh, the, the contrast between Braddock's expedition and the subsequent expedition in 1758 under John Forbes that was successful and indeed uh, resulted in, in British control of the Forks of the Ohio and a permanent British presence in the Ohio Valley. Well, we'll have to have you back when that book is out. Wonderful. I'll look forward to that very much. We've been speaking with David Preston. He is the author of this book, Braddock's Defeat, The Battle of the Monongahela and the Road to Revolution. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.